Welcome to another episode of the Phoenix Rising Podcast. I am your host, Lisa Hillier. And today for our episode, I have taken excerpts from previous episodes all around women's health. And if you've been with me for a long time, you know that I have been on quite the healing journey this past year. I went deep into some dark spaces with the initiation into menopause. And so I am super passionate about spreading the message to get your hormones checked, reconsider being vegan, and really put your mental health and hormone health at the forefront. And so this episode, I hope, will offer a lot of wisdom and knowledge as to how to support your body so that your initiation through pregnancy into menopause, whatever it might be, is a smooth one. And so please share this episode with anybody that you feel it might benefit and give us a five-star rating. If it resonates, write a written review. It all helps so much to get this these conversations out to a wider audience and I am so 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 grateful that you are all here it'll be in the show notes with the links to the full episodes with each guest if you feel called to listen to the full episodes and as well there is a link to Madeline McKinnon's hormone health cookbook which I highly 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 recommend the link is in the show notes and There's so much information about hormone health and so many great easy recipes so that you can bring your hormones into balance. And so that link is in the show notes. I highly recommend checking it out. And yeah, let's dive into this episode all around women's health. I would love to know what what comes up for you around menopause and hormonal health. I am in the thick of menopause right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It has not been an easy transition. Mm-hmm. And so I would love to know how can you support yourself with food during yes. menopause? Yeah, food is so important because what's happening in menopause is you have your hormones are dropping quite drastically, especially your estrogen and your progesterone. And usually menopause, like the transition period of perimenopause can actually take a long time for women. It can be about a 10 year transition of the hormones fluctuating. So you're usually in perimenopause. So menopause is considered not having a period for one year. That's like officially menopause. And then perimenopause is that period leading up to it. So your hormones are fluctuating and sometimes your estrogen can fluctuate to like extremes where it can go really high, double the amount of what it should be, and then go really low. And then it can put you on this roller roller coaster of hormones. Mm. And these drops in your hormones, these drops in your estrogen and your progesterone, first off, really impact mental health because your brain chemistry gets quite used to our hormones and having that drop of of hormones can definitely like influence, like cause more chances of depression, anxiety. And then we're also that transition going through menopause too, is, is bone health is is a really important thing we need to discuss too, because Mm. bone density declines quite drastically when estrogen drops in menopause. And 
it turns out our bodies re really relied on that for healthy bone formation, really relied on that estrogen. So your body in menopause, nutrition becomes almost more important because when you're getting proper minerals in your diet, it can help prevent the bone loss that can happen in, in menopause. So I think bone health is really important. Um, so those are some things we can talk about nutritionally. And adrenal health is something that a lot of people don't talk enough about because your ovaries stop making estrogen and progesterone. They, they don't, they don't make it anymore. And then your adrenals will take over and, and also your, you'll produce estrogen from fat tissue too. So, but your adrenals have to work a lot harder. So mm. if you go into me menopause with an adrenal issue, maybe you've been going through a lot of stress, maybe for example, a lot of the time what happens in that perimenopause transition is like a lot of things happen at once. So you might have like changes in relationships, having to take care of family members, like sick parents, you know, kids <laughs> growing up, there's so many different factors too. So we can definitely talk about adrenal health and bone health and healthy estrogen too is, is really important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What does estrogen do for us and what does progesterone do for us? Like I think progesterone's the happy hormone. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Progesterone is more of the calming hormone. So mm -hmm. if, if your body's responding properly to progesterone, because there's actually some people that don't respond as well to progesterone, but progesterone should have a calming effect and your body's going to produce it in that second half of your cycle. Uh, so progesterone is, is really important for countering the effects of estrogen. Uh, I'll talk about estrogen a little bit first too, because estrogen um, is really important for like making us feel like it's really important for skin health, um, like having well, like moisturized skin. Estrogen is, is a really key um, healthy hair. Uh, it's important for our heart health, our bone health. Uh, just in general, it can really help moods too. So a lot of people tell me that they feel usually the best around ovulation in when you're having a regular menstrual cycle where you have that peak of estrogen. Usually it's going to help with moods and energy. It's a really important hormone, but it can get a bad rep when estrogen gets too high. Um, or maybe if you don't make enough pro progesterone, you really estrogen can cause problems. So it can increase chances of fibroids. It can increase breast cysts, cause more PMS, cause more like lower energy, like mood swings. It can cause some issues, but hmm. progesterone is really important because it keeps that estrogen in check. So they have this balancing effect. So okay. you, it will prevent like PMS mood swings, fibroids, a lot of these things as well. Mm, beautiful. Mm -hmm. So with minerals, what minerals do you need for bone health? Mm -hmm. What, what foods are going to give those to you? Totally. So the, the most important one, ones are calcium, but uh, a lot of the time, way too much emphasis is giving to, to calcium. Calcium is like the basics for bone health. And I do recommend people get forms of calcium in their diet and you don't have to get it from dairy. You can get it from leafy greens. I really like like getting it from like salmon and trout and sardines actually from fish-based sources or sesame seeds are an excellent source of calcium, especially 
in perimenopause and menopause because they have some phytoestrogens in there. Uh, but magnesium is really important too. We mm. really need magnesium for, for healthy bone health. And one thing too, not enough people talk about is vitamin K, in particular vitamin K2, which mm. you can get from certain animal products. It's most, and fermented foods. So a really high source of K2 is this fermented uh, Japanese, I believe it's soybeans called natto. It's a really, really strong flavor. Some people find it really strong. Uh, but natto is a really good source and different aged cheeses like Gouda, Brie. Gouda is known to be like the best option and just getting more fermented foods in the diet, like fermented veg veggies and sauerkraut. Uh, that's really important. And sometimes I do recommend supplementing with these for, for people going through perimenopause because the more minerals, the less the bone loss. And uh, so, so K2 is important. Zinc is another super important mineral. Uh, I really recommend zinc from seafood and red meat. It's very, it's more bioavailable that way. You can get it in pumpkin seeds and some plant foods, but getting it in those animal forms is really good for absorption. And then vitamin D is really, really important for bone health. So getting that vitamin D from the sun as much as you can in the summer months, and then possibly considering supplementation too in, in really high quality forms in mm. the winter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I started taking zinc. It was recommended and I've just been mm -hmm. taking it like in a supplement form. Is that okay? Um, yeah, the, the key thing with zinc is to take it balanced with copper. So like okay. it should always have copper to balance because if you take a lot of zinc, it can deplete your copper reserves, which are important for um, iron deficiencies in particular. So I'm, I like to take it in a form like a formula. So there's certain ones I really like that have like vitamin there's one that has magnesium, zinc, B6, a bit of copper, um, all mixed together. So okay. it's nice to take things, but I, I do prefer to get them in, in food form yeah. or mixing it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's always kind of the better way, isn't it? Yes. Is to get it with your, your diet. Does anything come up for you around, um, being vegan and menopause? Um, mm -hmm. and can that be harmful? I do believe that, part of why I maybe went into early menopause was because I was mm -hmm. vegan for six and a yeah. half years. Yeah. Yeah. The biggest, so the biggest issue around vegan diets is really the, the mineral deficiencies that okay. can happen over time, especially these mineral deficiencies like zinc uh, being more bioavailable in animal forms, uh, having proper iron and bioavailable DH, DHA from fish, I think is probably I was mentioning one thing that I really learned from writing this book is the importance of omega-3. And I knew omega-3 was really important. Um, but when I was looking at like, I would, when I was writing the book, I would look at each hormone and look at the research on what nutrients are needed to support each hormone. Like, and almost, heard, oh, I'm pretty sure every single hormone omega-3 was important like mm. DHA was important for hormone production. So I think that's, yeah, I would say like zinc, iron, 
Uh, and I'm definitely in like not getting enough complete protein in the diet. Mm. Um, but I really like a balanced approach be- with vegan diets too, because I think that you don't have to eat, especially in menopause, you, you don't have to eat meat every single day. It can mm. actually be beneficial to eat plant-based food in menopause. So you don't have to have it like every day, as long as you're having it like frequently enough to get the nutrients in your diet. And so there also is a benefit of having like all of like more like seeds and nuts and different leafy greens. So it's actually, I more recommend like mostly someone consuming like more meat and more animal products really around that like fertility time. Like that's when you really want to concentrate having it. But if you've developed a deficiency from not consuming, consuming them, you might want to have more going through perimenopause, but it's just all about finding that balance of like, make sure you don't develop the deficiencies, but you can still Mm. eat like a pretty plant-based diet. And it can be really beneficial for longevity as well to have like more plant-based foods. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's almost, it feels like it's building up those reserves of yes. the minerals and, um, for the adrenals and all that kind of stuff. Where totally. The animal. Yeah. And I have, um, I have a section in the book I talked about in my low estrogen chapter. So in the book, there's a chapter for different types of common hormone imbalances. So a low estrogen is kind of the menopause chapter, but I also talked about how, what you can do to prevent early menopause too, and prevent and help to support egg quality and I had have a list of specific foods and like seafood was the top recommendation mm. on that list. Um, there's, there's research that having seafood can help prevent early, early menopause. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Very good to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like I'm having a lot of these conversations so the listeners can prevent maybe what, what I'm going through, you know, can get their mm-hmm. adrenals robust and all their levels up so that they're not mm-hmm. having a, a challenging time going through mm-hmm. the transition yeah. for sure. Definitely. So when, you know, we start to notice that, um, you know, I always tell women like around perimenopause and menopause, you'll notice a lot of women just don't have the tolerance for more stuff on their plate. Whereas before they used to be like, yeah, okay, I'll get that done too. And I'll get that done. But we often see, or we can remember our moms just kind of losing it when they were asked one more question, if could they do this? And then they can't. And that has to do with, um, yeah, how our hormones are functioning. So in perimenopause and menopause, our ovarian hormones are going down. And so our progesterone is dropping down and progesterone has a lot to do with how we handle anxiety. Um, And most of us, so when we live a life and most of it's like, it's pretty much most of our adult life in a fairly chronic stress, uh, sympathetic state, then our adrenal glands kind of um, get a little bit overwhelmed and are there. I, consider them like the batteries in our body and those batteries start to be drained. And so the main thing that your adrenals will produce is cortisol. 
Cortisol is there to help you cope with stress. If you're chronically stressed, your body will try to chronically increase the amount of cortisol it's producing, but it just doesn't have the capacity physiologically to continue that. So what happens is that cortisol level drops, but that still becomes for your body like a, a priority pathway, the cortisol. And so everything that your adrenals makes, will, will, it will try and push it into cortisol. And then if there's leftovers, it'll go into the adrenals produce sex hormones and they're your backup really for your ovaries. So they'll, that can produce progesterone, DHEA, testosterone, estrogen, which is wonderful. But if we have prior to perimenopause, a chronic stress state, then our adrenals are not able to catch up and um, compensate with the progesterone, DHA, testosterone, and estrogen. Um, so we end up in a more, more and more stressed state. And the interesting thing about the progesterone that comes from the adrenal glands is it can turn into something that crosses the blood brain barrier and it binds GABA, which decreases anxiety. So if our bodies aren't able to make enough of that progesterone, then we become more and more anxious through perimenopause and postmenopause. And we just can't, we actually hormonally cannot cope with stress. Mm. And so we can regulate and try and breathe all we want, but we just have this deficiency of hormones. Mm. Yeah, that is exactly why I've been in this sympathetic state for the past year was I was in menopause and, and didn't know. I thought I yeah. just lost my period because I was vegan, but it turns out I was in full-blown menopause. And so the healing has been bringing my hormones back into a, a balanced state. So with that for women, you know, before they go into menopause, because I'm in it quite young, how do you support your adrenals? Are there plants, herbs that support your adrenals? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm of the mind where yes, it, like treating the root cause, which is often the environment in which we live in is important, but we can't always change the external environment, we can't change family stress necessarily, or the stress that that kids bring or, you know, whatever mm. your job is, you may not feel like you can change that stress at that time. So we have to change how the body's adapting to that stress. And so you can do that with, I mean, a number of herbs are fantastic. Um, sometimes you need to go into more of a repair zone uh, for the adrenals, as opposed to just adapting. But if you can start adapting things like ashwagandha, we all know of um, ashwagandha is great because not only does it help the body adapt to stress and preserve cortisol, but it also helps tonify your nervous system. And so really supports that parasympathetic state. Um, and it also has kind of like a, as a somewhat of a, not a side effect, but it can help the thyroid produce thyroid hormone as well. So that is quite helpful for most women. Um, there's also, well, schizandra would be your schizandra berries. Mm -hmm. um, they help the liver detox, but 
in their detox pathways, but they also help the body adapt to stress, especially when it's in like that mental fatigue and um, just helping your body and brain keep going through fatigue and stress. Skullcap is a great one because it's tonifying for the nervous system. Licorice is kind of what people often think of for adrenals and you could do that in tea. Um, but what licorice does is it keeps cortisol around longer. So you don't need as much. Mm. So that's a really nice one to preserve adrenals. Um, there's always the caveat that you have to know what your blood pressure is doing and how you would react to licorice because it can, in some people increase blood pressure. Um, there's so many adrenal herbs, rhodiola, um, ginseng, different types of ginseng. I'm trying to think of ones that are more local to Alberta or Canada. Um, you know what though is really cool? Echinacea. So echinacea is what we think of for the immune system. Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason it's coming up because it's grown everywhere in Canada and it's, it is a more native species and it has the ability to help our bodies adapt to stress as well as help our nervous systems. And it helps what's called brain derived neurotropic factors. So it helps your brain function better. So it's like this perfect mm. healthy aging herb. It does so. All the things. Yeah. It's not your, what we think of traditionally as an adaptogen or an adrenal herb, but it's certainly, it kind of helps build us as we age and helps our, you know, helps mm. us not go down too fast. I'm trying to think of, yeah. Can you do echinacea and tincture? Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful. It should echinacea should, if you are taking it in a tincture, um, should have a tingling effect on your tongue and increase saliva. Um, and that's how, you know, the active components of echinacea are in it. Cause if it doesn't do that, it's probably not going to have the active components in it. But if you like take an echinacea flower or what we call cone flower, and even if you like take the the middle part that has all the anthers on it around the, the petals around it. And you pop that off. And if you lick that, you'll feel this tingling sensation. That's what you're looking for. Okay. Beautiful. How can women support themselves naturally as they're going through perimenopause and menopause? That's a big question. Um, so <laughs> So, I mean, there's definitely, we want to think about adaptogens. We always want to think about supporting the adrenals because that is your backup hormones for your ovaries. And uh, without that, your metabolism will slow, weight gain will increase. Um, and the, the symptoms of perimenopause and menopause will be much, much more severe. But, you know, foundational things, we want to think about how we're eating, um, um, making sure that we're exercising muscle, building muscle mass is really important for women because the more muscle mass we have, the better our brains function, the better our hormones function. Um, and the more we can kind of like a huge tipping point for, for women for coming in to see me through perimenopause and menopause is always I'm gaining weight. It's, it's always like now I have weight around the middle and we know that weight around the middle 
some is appropriate um, as we go through menopause because your body will produce hormones from these, these uh, fat cells. Excess is not. Excess is related to heart disease. Excess um, is related to poor brain outcomes. So yeah, we want to make sure that we're exercising, building muscle, eating fat, um, saturated fats like butter. I'm a big proponent of eating animal-based proteins and fats because your hormones, the, all the hormones that your body makes comes from cholesterol. It comes from LDL or what we'd call bad fats. And so we need to, if we can give our bodies like grass-fed butter is great because it has um, all your fat soluble vitamins in it and that cholesterol. So it really helps our brain and our hormones function. Yeah. Do you want to speak at all to the dangers of veganism and your hormones? I believe that that's why I'm in menopause Yeah. so early. I would say so. I went into menopause at 41 and I'd been vegan for six and a half years at that point. So yeah. Can you speak to the, the dangers of veganism on fertility and, and just women's health? Yes. I will run it through the disclaimer that, um, not everybody should be eating meat sometimes, you know, for cultural or spiritual reasons, or if you find that vegetarian diet works best for you, fantastic. I will say practically uh, in my practice, it's really hard to treat hormones. It's really hard to treat anxiety. Um, and it's really hard to treat fertility when somebody eats zero, zero animal proteins, because, um, because then you're trying to supplement for where all the holes are going to be, but you're still not going to have like a really efficient building block for your hormones. So yeah, it can, it can be really, really tough to fix hormones on a vegan diet. Um, but you know, I know people have many reasons for being vegan, so mm. I can respect that. It's just, yeah. it just means we have to supplement more and we have to kind of make, yeah. And the more we can do with food and the more we can take back, um, non-processed foods, right. And eating, eating from the land and eating, you know, we don't need factory farms for cows. We just need some good ranchers. Let's kind of touch on mental health. If that feels good. I, you know, it feels like a lot of people are very anxious because there's a lot of fear, uh, narrative out in the world. And then that can lead to not sleeping and it can ripple out in so many, so many different ways. So for women, um, I don't know if it's different between women and men on how they would support themselves that are struggling mentally with anxiety or depression, um, as well as insomnia and not being able to sleep. Yeah. Um, well for everybody, I'd say like the top three sleep supplements that are very safe to try are usually, and I have had people add them one at a time, but it's usually magnesium, then glycine, and then inositol. A lot of people think of melatonin. They'll think of like kava or lemon balm or passion flower or other herbs to relax. Sometimes ashwagandha is a very good one. 
Magnolia can be really good. Rhodiola can be helpful for some people with sleep, but Rhodiola can also give people a little more energy. Um, but there's things that calm, GABA, relax the nervous system. But I'd say magnesium, inositol, and what was the other one I said? Magnesium, inositol, and glycine are usually the best for helping sleep. Um, then when you get into women over 45 or getting into the perimenopausal ages, that's a whole different beast. Um, so most commonly sleep problems are due to, or due to poor sleep hygiene for 95% of people, which typically means they're having alcohol or caffeine, which stick in your body for 48 hours. Most people don't want to hear that. But if you're having caffeine, it's going to affect you for two days, not just 12 hours or not just six hours. So if you're having caffeine, even in the morning, it could be affecting your sleep at night. Um, so that could be playing a role. You might need to do a little caffeine or alcohol detox. Um, but I find for a lot of people, it's sleep hygiene, too much screen time at bed, too much stress before bed, too much scrolling of scary news feeds before bed, or um, just being more mindful about the sleep routine, falling asleep around the same time every day is helpful. Um, having a fairly routine food and sleep schedule is very crucial. Um, but when women do get into the more menopause or close to menopause years, that's typically a whole different beast where you need to support their hormonal system, whether it's their adrenal, their thyroid, or their sex hormones through things like more hormonal replacement therapy for some people where it is when they're really depleted, they might actually need some natural or synthetic estrogen or progesterone or pregnenolone or DHEA. They can go to a doctor to get tested to see if they need that get their levels checked and then take that, that can be really helpful, but it is the strongest thing you could probably use with the most potential negative consequences as well. So I don't use that as a first line of defense, um, but if someone's like really struggling, sometimes we'll just give them some um, creams or natural hormone replacement to get them over a hump um, and they can get into the habit of feeling like they're able to sleep, especially if they have sleep anxiety, which is very common when you can't sleep, people then become stressed about sleeping, which is almost harder to correct than um, everything else. It makes it just like this weird catch 22. Like it's hard to sleep because you're stressed about sleep, but you can't sleep because you're stressed about stressing about sleep. And it's a big cycle. Um, so sometimes that can get people out of the cycle or um, supplementing with some of the herbs I mentioned or glycine, magnesium, and inositol can also be really helpful for people. Um, but in the menopausal years, it's not like your fault that you get to 45 or 55 and it's tougher to sleep or you wake up at the drop of a hat. It's not because you're necessarily like worrying about your children or you're more stressed. It, but your brain and your body does get more sensitive in those years to mm -hmm. inflammation, to alcohol, to caffeine. Your liver gets more sensitive. Your body does dry out from less estrogen, which is why a lot of the dryness happens or thinning of the skin happens. That's because of less estrogen and less um, hormonal support through menopause. Um, so it's not your fault that those things are happening. But if you lived in a healthier society and culture where we didn't have unclean tap water, we weren't slightly toxic or inflamed, or we had less stress in our lives or less phones or less white noise or less EMFs or less other things, um, then our hormone systems would be a lot healthier. That's mm -hmm. why Eastern Asian countries generally didn't really have menopausal symptoms until they started becoming Americanized or Westernized. Their food quality went down. They had less uh, fermented soy, healthy fermented soy, which is a natural iso 
um, flavonoid, it's similar to estrogen, like a pseudoestrogen. They have less of that. And so a lot of them then started increasing their menopausal symptoms. So I'm not actually anti-soy. Soy can actually help through menopause. Okay. Um, if it is an organic, non-GMO, clean source that's fermented like miso soup or natto or tempeh or things like that. I don't think we need to be having tons and tons of soy for most people, but through menopause is actually the prime time for the average person to have more miso soup or have more natto or tempeh. Going back to more ancestral ways, that ancestral wisdom coming up as well and, and creating community. Like I thought about over this past or these past couple of weeks going through menopause, nervous breakdown, whatever we want to call it. And thinking about, you know, an ancestral way of living, there would have been a group of women like with me through that, you know, like praying over me or helping me understand what was going on and that healing aspect and that community is so vital to that. And that would have been more of an ancestral way of doing things. Does that make sense? You know, like just being held in community when we're going through whatever we're going through, um, you know, whether it be our first period, you know, or going through menopause or childbirth, having our communities to support us. So integral. And I think that way of living is coming back. I hope so. I hope so. Because it's, yeah, we are not fully living as human beings right now. No, we're not fully thriving. No. Can you speak to birth control and natural ways of birth control? Um, I can. Um, I mean, when you're talking about birth control, you're talking about birth control pills, IUDs, Uh, hormonal injections. Can you speak to even copper IUDs? And, you know, is that kind of your best option if you want to use something um, as opposed to, you know, monitoring your system? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cycle monitoring isn't available for everyone. Not everybody has a regular cycle and birth control certainly has its has its place, right? And it does allow, um, you know, for more decision-making for women. So it does have its place where it doesn't kind of fit as well is when it's used to cover up symptoms of um, hormonal dysfunction. That's where I find it doesn't, it's not as useful. And if you're just taking a birth control pill because of your acne, then you're not really looking at why your body's doing that. Or if you're looking at it, taking it because your periods were very, very painful. Um, And then it just kind of, you're, again, you're covering that up and discovering why these things are happening will help your body be healthy overall, but also in the future, when you come off of these things, you'll have a lot less inflammation and you won't have a, a repeat of these symptoms. So it, it, I mean, it's a hard one because I know women um, like it and we, we have made it very normal to not have a period. And so to not even understand our cycles and even myself until even after 
I went to naturopathic school, I was still learning stuff and thinking, why the fuck didn't anyone teach this to me? Like, why, why didn't I know this? This would make so much sense if I understood how my cycle worked, if I understood where progesterone came from, um, or why I felt this way at certain parts of my cycle, or why, um, what my, my blood from my period told me about my body. It's really valuable information. And so to cover that up, we're, we're missing a lot. Um, and we're not, it's often not helpful for hormones and for fertility further down the road. Um, copper IUDs, if you, you are looking for birth control. So IUDs work by uh, irritating the uterine lining. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you add the hormones into it, it can decrease some of that irritation, but copper tends to some women are okay with it and some women find it's quite painful because again you're just it's creating a chronic irritation um but again it depends on what your goal is with birth control and if it's not to get pregnant then um that's certainly an option but if you're taking a cop if you have a copper iud um it's worth considering or like even getting your levels of copper and zinc tested in your body because copper and zinc compete for binding sites in the body and if you are only getting copper then you can lose um, the amount of zinc in your body and then there's certain immune functions that don't work as well so you might want to take zinc that sort of thing what about the hormonal birth controls like or the hormonal IUDs? What are alternates um, for those where you're naturally monitoring your cycle, right? Or there's like, there's no well, ways. Yes. And again, it, it requires that you have a regular cycle. So mm. not every woman has a regular every 28 to 30 days, like clockwork. And you know exactly when you're ovulating and you'd know exactly when your fertile and non-fertile days are. Cause if uh, you know, there's some women that that works really well for, but the problem is most women don't have a cycle that is that um, predictable and they don't have that kind of trust in their bodies. Mm -hmm. So um, there's always condoms. That is true. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Are but there... I mean, the Kylina Marina IUDs, um, they can be effective for certain things and they can, um, yeah, you just have to look at why you're taking it and um, and what are the possible side effects that it's, it's having on your body? And is that, you know, it's a risk benefit thing. Right. And I think a lot of the risks are starting to be spoken about now where, um, you know, there's all those tests that have been done about a woman on hormonal birth control will be attracted to uh, a different man. Your pheromones change than if she's not on birth control, you know, and, and just what it does to the innate wisdom of our womb and kind of closing us off from our intuition. And so those are starting to be spoken about those side effects of taking birth control. And from what I understand, I mean, I'm not an expert on birth control. I watched the documentary, the business of birth control. Have you seen it? I haven't yet. I think you told Good. me to watch it though. It opened well. my eyes to it and just how it was never meant to be a long-term solution, but many women are on it, you know, their whole 
yeah, you know, for, I don't know, 10 years or, you know, I, I always had IUDs, but I did have hormonal IUDs and then switched to copper IUDs, but you're on it for such a long time that it is affecting your, your hormones and everything. I would say, is that fair to say? Yeah. And uh, well, and you have to remember that the hormones in birth control are not, uh, they're synthetic hormones. They're not bioidentical hormones. So there, mm. there is also, um, kind of the way that your body gets rid of that and the way that those uh, synthetic hormones would bind different receptors in your body, but it, you know, it doesn't always have the desired effect. So, mm. yeah. 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 Are there herbs that help bring your cycle into homeostasis is the word I want to use, but where it's, it's cycling more naturally where you're having like a 28 day cycle, you're going through the um, you know, ovulating at mid cycle, that kind of thing that bring it back into balance? Well, you always have to look at, I mean, why the cycles out of balance in the first Mm -hmm. place. And, you know, you could, you kind of have to look at the whole picture of that. So there's not really a magic, magic herb that'll bring your cycle back, but, you know, certainly we think of things like chase tree berry, um, vitex, um, having one of those effects because it works at the pituitary. So the pituitary lives in your brain, just behind the bridge of your nose. And it is the gland that will signal your ovaries, different parts of your cycle, what to do, when to do it. And so often taking chase tree will help, um, not reset, but it will help regulate that communication between your pituitary and the ovaries. Um, and yeah, chase tree is now being studied for things like jet lag because it works so much on rhythms and that pituitary rhythm. And so you can take it for jet lag. You can take it as a shift worker, that kind of thing, but really it helps, excuse me, with that luteal phase of your cycle and bringing the progesterone back. Mm. So with menopause, cause I'm all about menopause right now as a minute, are there natural ways that I can bring the progesterone back? I mean, I'm on bioidentical hormones. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so progesterone post-menopause, um, there's not really a lot of herbs that like estrogen, we've got a lot of what are called selective estrogen receptor modulators, like black cohosh, um, and wild yam that can bind estrogen receptors and have an estrogen-like effect. Um, But when it comes to progesterone, there's not really a lot in the way of the herb world that has that same profound effect. Um, What you're looking at with progesterone post-menopause is your adrenal progesterone. Mm -hmm. And so again, that's where if you have some robust adrenals that have extra space to make the progesterone that's where it's going to be helpful but we don't have anything that's directly progesterogenic so you want robust adrenals robust adrenals (laughs) (laughs) that's where it's at is robust (laughs) adrenals yes everybody listening that's coming into the age of menopause get your robust adrenals i recommend it yeah. Yeah. And that comes through sitting in parasympathetic, exercising, eating, drinking enough water, all of that stuff. All the things. Yeah. And, you know, cause I think about my lifestyle 
I mean, I've had a lot of relational stress. I, I think we don't realize stress is on our bodies. Like I live by the ocean. I go to the forest every day. You know what? My work is not stressful, but there are stresses that I didn't think about that were causing, you know, things on my adrenals. Does that make sense? Yeah. What I'm saying, you know, and phones and screens and yeah, just things that kind of were not on my radar that were causing a lot of stress and inflammation. Well, in and yeah. And that's how like our bodies and our brains don't know what's real or imagined. So, um, and if we're talking about, you know, you've read, I'm sure some of Gabor Mate's books, but you know, when the body says no. So when there's been things going on for a long time that we're suppressing or we've ignored or we've yeah. pushed to the side, these things come out and that is like a form of chronic stress. EMFs, a form of chronic stress, right? We have to, I mean, we can't, I suppose we could, we could live completely off grid and se separate from society, but, you know, we have to pick and choose and, um, and there's lots we can do that can mitigate the effects of, of various stressors on our body. But yeah, I mean, you've, you have not a lot of like what would seem stress in your life because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it is nice to live by the ocean, Lisa. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful. But then when I think about it, I moved around a lot before yeah. I got out here and just things that I didn't really think about that were causing a lot of stress on my system. Um, that were all signs now looking back that maybe I was in menopause, but at the time didn't think about that, you know? So I'm just like speaking to it um, so that it doesn't get to the point of like a full nervous system. Yeah. Shutdown. Yeah. And being aware, like early on, like you were saying, what are the signs that you're in that fight or flight? Well, I mean, early on, there were probably little signs that were, you were, feeling dysregulated yeah but um yeah just like all of us and we learn to ignore them or downplay them and you know yeah yeah no there were signs definitely looking back and it was like oh it's post-covid you know we all kind of went through that and so starting to kind of notice the signs is very helpful so that it doesn't get to that point yeah and know? everybody will have different signs um that they're able to listen to in their bodies. Like everybody has something like everybody has kind of a weak tissue or a system in their body that, that will be like kind of your first clue that mm, mm -hmm. something's not great. Um, so learning whatever that barometer is for your body can be really helpful. Some people it's like skin stuff, like they get a little patch of eczema mm -hmm. and that's kind of like, okay, there's something going on. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a stress of some sort. What is it? Yeah. Hello, loves. Just interrupting the show for one quick moment to let you all know about a product that I absolutely love and that I am an affiliate for. As you all know, I have been going through quite the healing journey these past six or so months and insomnia was part of that. And my go-to for insomnia is pearl powder. And it is also 
amazing. It's been used in Chinese medicine for thousands and thousands of years for our skin and bones. It's full of minerals and it is so nourishing. So, so nourishing. And so my favorite company to purchase my pearl powder, my pearl of the sea is from Wild Holistic. I love their small batch, cozy, comfy business style. And it is absolutely a pleasure to purchase their products. And my go-tos are the earth drops full of vulvic acid and humic acid and pearl of the sea and the healing body, which is turmeric, ginger, and holy basil full of anti-inflammatory goodness. And so there is a link for Wild Holistic in the show notes. And if you use discount code LISA, capital L, capital I, capital S, capital A, all capitals, use discount code LISA, you will receive a 10% discount on checkout. And I am an affiliate of the company because I use their product and I fully stand by it. And so by purchasing through my link, you are supporting the podcast. Part of the proceeds go to me and I am so, 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 so grateful. So yeah, back to the show. What are some ways that you can support your adrenals or pump up your adrenals? Mm. So there's like a, a big reserve there. Definitely. Yeah. So adrenals, of course, your, the, the adrenal, they, they can get depleted by stress is usually the most common issue. And the, the, the thing that I see in my practice with adrenals is because your adrenals produce cortisol, which is a really important hormone that is what spikes in the morning to wake you up. And then it goes down for, especially at the end of the day, right when you're going to sleep. So the cortisol, usually what people have issues with is a cortisol imbalance where they're either producing too much and they're in really high cortisol stage, or they're producing not enough cortisol, which is going to cause really low energy, or they can get into issues where you produce too much, or you produce not enough cortisol in the morning and too much at night. So those are the things that I see usually when I'm running hormone tests, um, but usually you could know that you have an adrenal issue if you're feeling like really low energy, feeling more easily stressed, so more easily overwhelmed than usual. So maybe, yeah, maybe you've been through a time of stress, something happens like your job or, you know, personal life and just going through that time of stress like coming out of it if you notice that like things are starting to stress stress you more or you're just feeling really like fatigued through the day brain fog um problems losing weight especially around the midsection like those are some signs of cortisol issues um but in general i think so many of us need cortisol and adrenal support in our culture just because of how life is but what you can do to support your adrenals number one is eat regular meals throughout the day. It's actually, I'm always, I'm someone where I'm all about like foundations first. Let's figure out what the biggest needle movers are. So what I found actually works the best for my clients is make sure you're eating breakfast. Such a simple thing, but so many mm. people don't do it, but make sure you're eating breakfast, especially something with protein. I would prioritize something with protein first. And that can be some sort of protein powder, 
if and they're like a smoothie if you prefer, but having like ideally just something that's very grounding uh, that will help stabilize your blood sugar first thing in the morning. Um, Cause I find for me personally, kind of if I don't have breakfast, I'll notice that I just feel more, more easily stressed throughout the day. And a lot of my mm. clients find that too. And this is an important tip too, for anxiety, for anyone that's struggling with anxiety. It's, it's so simple because usually if some people feel more anxious. They want to do the opposite, but just really prioritizing fat, protein, carb, like having a really solid meal first thing uh, at breakfast and then lunch and eating really nourishing, three really nourishing meals per day because it will remind your body. It's almost like feeding your body well will remind your body that will make your body feel less stressed because if you're in a stress state and you're not eating regular meals, your body's like very ancient primal response might start to think that you're like, you know, there's threat of famine or there's threat of mm. not as much food and that can cause cortisol dysregulations. So feed yourself well throughout the day. Don't start the day and just have coffee. And that's a recipe for just more, more anxiety, more stress. So that's the foundation. And also another really simple thing that I think is so important is get sunlight because your adrenal rhythm is really synced up with your circadian rhythm, like of the rhythm of the sun, of how your body knows when it's awake and when it's sleeping, they're all connected. So proper light exposure can also be incredibly healing to adrenals because you want to mimic what our ancestors were had more time outside, weren't on the computer as much. Mm-mm. They would, it would just, have you ever had that experience sleep where you've gone camping and have had like the most amazing sleep? Yes. Yeah. Really like fresh deep air. sleep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, like, so good. Fresh air. It feels so different, but that's actually what it's supposed to be. Like mm-hmm. that's how we're supposed to be sleeping. Just that really, because we have, yeah, the cooler temperatures really good, of course, for sleep too, but just getting natural light if you're outside, what that's going to do is it's going to help regulate your cortisol levels. So it's going to just make, if your cortisol is a bit low, it will help naturally boost it in the morning. And then as you go towards your day, at the end of the day, um, avoid bright light, like avoid screens. Um, even if you can install like red light bulbs to put on in your home and just use those, uh, red light glasses. I have my right light. I think I have them here. Maybe. Yeah. Like I have these. I'm sure for those that are listening, I'm putting on my red light glasses <laughs> for some protection because the cool thing is our ancestors would actually have had exposure to red light from the fire. Oh, that would be their wow. only light. So yeah. fire light around being around the fire. So you can have that red light is fine. And they've done research on it. And when you have that red light exposure, you'll, you won't, your melatonin, you'll get more melatonin at night and it should prevent that cortisol from being too high at night. So really healing light exposure. So biggest tip is in the morning, especially as soon as you can in the morning, I sometime before noon, but the earlier, the better get outside. I throw off even 15, 30 minutes. That's great. And then before bed, just avoid the scroll on the phone. Mm, really mm-hmm. simple thing. It's free, really effective. So, so those are the two basics. And I really think that if most people did this, they would feel so much better. 
Uh, and this is all beyond just regular stress management. Of course, we want to work on managing stress, but some things are totally, sometimes stressful times are out of our control. Uh, then, but the other thing is adaptogens. So using specific herbs to support your nervous system and support your adrenals. And that's where like the elixirs come in in hand, like making, adding reishi mushroom into an elixir or ashwagandha or just taking a supplement can be helpful with those adaptogenic herbs too, but having specific ones of the right time. And when I'm working with clients, I'm very, very specific about what herbs they should use and what time they should take the herbs based on their hormone test results. So if I see I have a client that um, her cortisol is spiking at night, I'll have like specific cortisol calming herbs that she does before bed. Mm -hmm. And Sometimes my clients too need more herbs for supporting their nervous system, like nervine herbs. And if they've been had nervous system has been fried as well, like some more anxiety, then things like passion flower is really a really like nourishing or milky oat is a really cool herb. It's a neurotrophic restorative that can really help restore your nervous system over time. So working with herbs can be really, really effective as well. Mm, I've been taking milky oat and that's oh. been really supportive. Oh, that's awesome. I love tinctures. That's my mm -hmm. go-to. Mm -hmm. Do cold plunges do anything for hormone health? Do you know cold plunges? Um, well, you would actually, so if I, if you are in a very sensitive space with adrenals, so if you're feeling adrenally exhausted, if you're feeling tired, um, you feel like your system is, is really needing some care. I won't, I don't recommend cold plunges because you want things that are more like nourishing. Um, cold plunges are great over time. Like as you're feeling, um, if to do, because they can help your body, it, it provides that good stress to allow your body to adapt, but it's like kind of the spectrum of healing. So for, for example, for adrenal healing, I always recommend people be careful with certain forms of exercise. So for example, if you're somebody that exercises and does like a really heavy hit workout or a hike and you do your exercise and you feel like you've been hit by a bus afterwards, feeling totally exhausted, I always recommend staying away from those really intense workouts. Mm. So always listening to your body. So for somebody that is in that state of adrenal adrenal issues where they're they're feeling really fatigued from exercise I don't recommend cold plunges because they probably are in that state where they need more like nourishment so like you know warm like less stress on their body essentially so their body can heal but then at that point if you're feeling you know, if you're building up your resiliency over time then cold plunges could be, be helpful too Okay. Yeah. I was doing cold plunges and now I have a cold, but oh. <laughs> they felt amazing. They felt mm -hmm. really good and they helped my sleep actually. Yeah. But I think it was too much yeah. on my system. Totally. It's, I think that it just depends. Like I, one actually thing that is helpful too, is just like um, getting cold, like uh, under the armpits, like when you're mm. showering um, as too, like just, just that's a lymph nodes to help flush everything out. So you could, that's something to start with too. But it's just really about listening to the body. I think as people heal from adrenal issues and they become a lot more sensitive to how their body feels too, because you know a lot of people in the past, like myself included, have been in more states of like getting to the adrenal 
fatigue, like lots of states of stress. Sometimes you might not notice because you're so used to stress, but mm. as your body starts to heal and those sensitivities develop, then you're, you should, yeah, usually can get, feel very in tune of like, is this good or is this not good for my body over time? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to speak mm-hmm. to what the endocrine disruptors are? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I did have a, I have section at the end of my book on avoiding endocrine disruptors because endocrine disruptors are, are chemicals from our environment that can really drastically impact our hormone health. So many of us are exposed to really, really high levels of them and they can act like estrogen in our bodies, unfortunately, and our bodies can actually take these endocrine disruptors in and put them in our estrogen receptors and they can negatively impact us. So I really believe that a lot of hormone issues are from the exposure to endocrine disruptors over time. And we can be exposed to them through our skincare. So a lot of skincare um, can be an issue like anything. Um, I have a whole list here that I will pull up, but um, I have a whole um, guide to avoiding endocrine disruptors too, that anyone that purchased the book can get access to, but like skincare, um, Mm. pesticides, herbicides, things that are like in our food, in our skincare and in our cleaning products are some of the biggest, biggest issues with endocrine disruptors uh, as well that we really need to be aware of too, because, you know, we can eat well, we can do all of the, this good stuff, but if we're not actually avoiding some of these things in our environment, then we can still run into issues too. So I do did add that in because I think it's just one of those really, really key important aspects. Yeah. I have a list here that I can, can go through as well. Um, yeah. Have you, you know, and yeah, so, so essentially it's like, yeah, you really want to be aware of first off, like probably what actually one thing that most people don't know about enough is I'll tell the reader actually some really simple things you can do to reduce your exposure to endocrine disruptors. And actually one of the most simple things is like making sure your house is vacuumed. Wow. Yeah. Like actually having prop, like, because dust can have that concentration of those endocrine disruptors like just research. So just know that like when you're like vacuuming your house, like and getting rid of that dust, like getting rid of it under kids' beds and just in that area, it like areas of your house, like and, and just making sure you're breathing clean air, it's it's really, really key to be to be avoiding those things. Were there any other big ones that people wouldn't think about? Oh yeah, some other big ones like actually being aware of having like um you know there's certain rugs like the rugs that are like the washable rugs those Mm -hmm. things can actually be an issue as well so like there's a lot of I think it's really important to actually be um aware of actually like when you're buying like home products so like you there's a lot of like advertisements for these like washable rugs on Instagram right now and I think it's important to actually contact those companies and like make sure that they don't have those chemicals in them 
Mm. That's that's another thing that's really important. And then also food. Like I think the, the the main thing is like being aware of what you should get organic and what you shouldn't get as organic. Um, I think like really paying attention to that the clean 15 and dirty dozen list. If you look it up, I believe it's by the environmental working group puts it out, but just being aware of like certain foods like potatoes, spinach, I believe tomatoes are on that list and even kale. Um, mm. They have a list of the most heavily sprayed crops that I think are really, really important to avoid. Um, so like, oh, just being aware of like, uh, finding those foods like just having that list available because if you're like I, I did a video the other day on spinach and how so many people like you know we were told spinach is healthy it's good to add greens and then people will add spinach to their smoothies every single day like have two handfuls of spinach but spinach is one of the most heavily sprayed crops so mm -hmm. you need to be aware of those those things too of just like what are those like what's on the list too um and then, oh, do you know what, actually, I think this is probably the one thing that I, so many people still do is like using like fragrance, like those fragrances mm. in their home, like those like plug-in, those yeah. plug-in fragrances. I can't believe how many people still use them. And it's really disturbing because a lot of people use them with kids at home too. And like, that's, I think that actually for young girls, young boys, avoiding these like endocrine disrupting chemicals too, like anything with a fragrance in it uh, can be very, very disruptive to the body and like impact the immune response. Uh, so I really think avoiding like those, those products, like as much as possible, like any sort of sprays and fragrances, just avoid those things hundred yeah. percent. Like we, we just moved into a new house and I think the our old owners like wanted to be so nice and they plugged in some sort of scent for us. And I think they moved out two weeks before we moved in and they had it plugged in for two weeks mm -hmm. <laughs> and I found it there. And like, it, it takes a while. I, I still, it's still been like over a month and I still smell it in the home. And I think we really need to be aware of like, especially for kids uh, as well like with developing reproductive systems we should be really conscious not to expose ourselves to these things for sure yeah mm -hmm. I find it interesting with garbage bags most of the garbage bags now yes are mm -hmm. scented with Febreze and it's so I know. gross I I almost slipped out the other day because I bought compost bags and mm. they had them scented and I was like why would you send a, a compost bag it's going yeah. into the landfill because I, I just had no idea that that would be a thing. So it just, yeah, drives me a bit crazy. That's yeah. How, and yeah, and I, there was a time when I was trying to look for a garbage bag and I couldn't find, I couldn't find one that wasn't scented. It was so yeah. weird. So crazy. And, like, and it's usually, and then you find the one that's like the no name, actually the one that's cheap, like somewhere hidden on the shelf. But that's, that's a, that's a good point too. Just those garbage bags. Yeah, don't get the Febreze-scented oh, ones. And also um, one thing, um, menstrual products actually are another big one too. So menstrual products, um, like being, and some of them are scented, like those ones, mm. but I think menstrual products are a huge one too, because your skin, like think about like the skin and in, in the, those areas, the tissue, it's very 
sensitive. There's less layers of skin. It's very like sensitive, absorbent tissue there. And it's like right where our reproductive organs are, very close to our ovaries. Putting on those products, I think, are really, really, really horrible too when it comes to hormone health because there's a lot of like bleach, a lot of toxins. There's a lot of endocrine disruptors in menstrual products, which I also mm. just don't understand. So I yeah. really recommend prioritizing like organic if you're going to with the disposable like organic pads or looking at reusable cotton pads um, but it even came out recently that those the period underwear by the, the brand thinks mm -hmm. came up that that has endocrine disruptors they can oh, wow. disruptors in it uh, so you have to be really careful with with what you're using but I like like organic cotton like either reusable or disposable I 100% recommend and it's also amazing how hard it is to find them too like for me, uh, sometimes I'll, I'll drive across the city if I, to get them, you know, and it's, it's not very accessible. Like I did see some just in the regular supermarket the other day, um, but they had tampons, but not pads. So mm. I could go off on this for a long time. You just got me started, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But those ones, I would say it's like, yeah, vacuum your home. Um, yeah. Be aware of like, yeah washable rugs like they they put the certain chemicals that they put on them to be washable can actually be quite endocrine disruptive um fragrances and menstrual products and then just heavily sprayed certain crops like look up the clean 15 and dirty dozen uh, so that's why part i did at the end of the book have resources on avoiding endocrine disruptors and then i do have a guide that people can sign up for too that and I can provide that to you as well. So we can put that in the show notes okay. as well for people. But I have a guide that has a lot of tips on recommended products and, and what, what you should be looking for as well. Okay, beautiful. Mm -hmm. That sounds amazing. Do you want to speak to just weight loss and how most people change their diet for weight loss? And that's kind of the focus mm -hmm. and yes. what is actually important. Totally. Yeah. It's really funny because a lot of the time when somebody meets me for the first time, just in the regular world, and I say, they're like, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, oh, well, I'm a nutritionist. They always assume I help people with weight loss. They're mm. like, oh, can you help my sister? Well, I'm going to give you an email. They don't even, they just assume that's what you do when you think of nutrition and weight loss. And one thing I, I really want to do when I talk about in the book is changing that conversation around uh, just thinking of nutrition and weight loss um, and thinking about, and I, I think when a lot of women want weight loss, I think what it comes down to is like, I think more women should just put their focus in nutrition for hormone balance because mm -hmm. there's so many more, like there's so many more reasons to be eating for hormone balance because it's, it's like nutrition, like when your hormones are balanced, you are going to feel more energy. You're going to have a better sex drive. You are going to just feel you're going to have less PMS symptoms. You're going to have a more healthy metabolism and be able to like eat a nourishing amount of food and like meta your metabolic health is going to improve. Your sleep is going to improve. Um, I just think way more benefits when it comes to hormone health. So I want to yeah. change that conversation and let's talk about 
what can you eat for healthy hormone function over time than just focusing on weight loss? Because those people that put their emphasis in just nutrition for weight loss, it often backfires. Often they end up gaining back the weight. Mm. And then if you're in always dieting, always in these calorie restrictions over time, it's really, really challenging for hormone health too, because you need nutrients, your ovaries need certain nutrients like zinc, you might not be getting enough and being in a calorie deficit stresses the adrenals, elevates cortisol, and it can impact estrogen and progesterone over time. So I'm just all about like, let's change that conversation. And I think the conversation is changing for sure. Um, but it's still not really out in the mainstream too much. And what I'm wanting to do from this book is um, I do just show people that there is research on all the different hormones and how food and nutrients impact every single hormone. There's a ton of research and a ton of people's personal experience. So let's, yeah, let's change that conversation. Mm, yeah, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a big one. It's not all about weight loss. Like hormone mm-hmm. health is mm-hmm. key. Um, yeah. Yeah. To your overall health for sure. When I was probably in my twenties and early thirties, I had a lot of anxiety and it would show up for me like a cement ball in my womb space. Like just felt like something is always, something bad is going to happen that like doom is around the corner. And that went away for a really long time. And then I recently went into menopause quite early and that reignited, I'll use that word, uh, the anxiety. And now it shows up as like liquid lava in my heart. Just this like, Ooh, like something's off, you know, like this burning in my heart. So it's interesting how it can show up in the body and then how you start to correlate with what's going on in the mind and, and all of that. Does anything come up for you around hormones and anxiety? Just because I touched on menopause there, which is, you know, your hormones go completely out of whack I'll say they're they're disrupted and that causes all kinds of fun times yeah and I mean beautiful descriptions as well of the sensation that's so perfect it's it's I love connecting it to, to images but look with hormones it's this interesting interplay where everything is connected and we can't as much as I wish we could just you know consciously dissolve these experiences and we probably can (laughs) to some extent but we're also humans and we have this physical vessel and our hormones do impact us and so it's kind of like I've got this concept called the resilience shield and we have a shield that protects us and makes us more resilient to the triggers of our life our environment around us the stresses the relationships all of those things that might be entering our space and making us feel uncomfortable or feel that zap of anxiety. Mm. Hormones are one of the ones that, that that's a key part of this shield. And if we don't address that, we're just going to be so much more sensitive to what's already there. You know, you might notice that on a previous day, five years ago, you could receive a particular text message that has a stressful requirement in it. 
or a tax bill or a difficult conversation with a family member or a friend and you would feel maybe a bit different about it but then when you're you're in this state where your hormones are fluctuating and changing it's much harder to experience that and hold that space and have that conversation and even stay conscious stay present of how you are re- reacting um, to the situation with hormones around uh, menopause, we are looking at, it's actually very similar to what happens in the PMS phase of like your menstrual cycle, where before our period, we typically notice that dip in our resilience. We're more sensitive. We want to cry. We might lash out at people we love. We're thinking, who is this person? I was so zen like a week ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and usually there's relief upon actually getting your period as well. And it's part of the hormone change that happens namely the main one that's really important here is progesterone. We experience a drop in our progesterone levels and progesterone is what creates a calming effect in the brain and it helps us feel nice and relaxed. So it's got a protective effect against anxiety. Now in menopause and even perimenopause, what's happening is we're producing a lot less of this hormone progesterone. In fact, we're not really producing much at all because in order to make progesterone, we must be ovulating regularly. In perimenopause, we're ovulating less frequently. You're usually skipping a month of of ovulating. It's that egg release that creates the progesterone that calms us down. Now the body will reach its equilibrium again as as you move through that phase, but it's literally like going through puberty again. It's another puberty. It's a whole adjustment of your body, your mind, your chemistry, your system, um, recalibrating into another state. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just, it just is what happens. And in fact, there are many, many amazing adaptive things that can happen to, for our resilience in the positive when we enter that stage post-menopause, because we aren't experiencing these wild fluctuations of our hormones every month. We're not necessarily feeling so preoccupied with the pursuit of, um, of love, romantic love and that kind of thing. We're just kind of, we're, we're often more able to be focused on our projects and our desires and what we want to create in the world, because we're not distracted by, I suppose the, the strong biological urge to reproduce which is what happens when we're thinking about men and partners and and sexuality and all of those things not that that goes but it's just a different state Mm. so that's pretty much what's happening it it will change the the resilience it's got a lot to do with progesterone it's temporary and there's a lot to support that as well in terms of certain herbal medicines magnesium can be amazing to help reduce um, some of that anxiety, particularly hormonally, and really just knowing our nervous system needs a lot of love and care around that time. And reducing or stopping alcohol altogether is probably one of the like best supplements you can take, if you can think of it that way. Supplements and things can become quite expensive, but it costs nothing. In fact, you'll save money if you can get into your head, okay, if I can work towards maybe going, I'll see how I go a month off alcohol. Does that make me feel better? I'll see if I go go two months off. I'll look for alternatives that I can enjoy and still maintain a social life and all of those things. Give yourself that, that goal kindly and see how you feel. It's one of the best things that the evidence says you can do. I'm sober. So I've been sober for a really long time, but for listeners, I know there are a lot of women that say as they get older, um, they can't handle the alcohol or it makes them feel worse or, 
um, it shows up differently than it did when, you know, you were much younger. So what's ha- what does the alcohol do? Does it intensify anxiety? I mean, I, I did used to drink and when I did drink in my twenties and stuff, it definitely intensified anxiety, but is that similar to what's happening in the years post-menopause? I mean, I'm going to really scare people off alcohol if I go down this path too much. And I just want to preface this by saying that, you know, it's never all or nothing. And the anxious mind always wants to latch onto this kind of information. Like, you know, we start going down the realm of toxins in the environment and plastics. Mm. and we, We can freak ourselves out because it's everywhere and we can't escape it. All we can do is be informed by the information and make different choices to do our best that we can. With alcohol, it's kind of coming in our body from so many angles. As you were saying that, I'm like, how do I cover this question? Because it's often increasing or dysregulating our levels of inflammation in our body. And that is a whole element to some of the symptoms around perimenopause and menopause. Um, It is putting a lot of burden on our liver and our liver does the beautiful job of detoxifying particular hormones as well as alcohol from our body so that we're not getting imbalances happening. So if we're drinking alcohol, there's that impact that's happening on the liver. It's also influencing our gut microbiome. You think when you have a cut and you've hurt yourself, you're going to, if you don't have anything else available, you often are going to use an alcohol swab to disinfect the wound because you want to kill bacteria there's all this bacteria in our gut and we're sloshing it down with alcohol. It's killing off your good bacteria when we drink, especially if we're drinking frequently. There'll always be those anomaly people who can just like drown themselves in alcohol every single day. And they seem to live to a hundred and, you know, can also chain smoke and all of that. That's just life. Some people do have a greater level of resilience in one way or another, but I mean, we can question that person's quality of life as well. And certainly it will create that inflammation. And then of course we get the rebound effect with uh, with alcohol where the next day we're we're often going to feel quite good when we have it initially. It's that, ah, I feel relaxed. I've just like had a stressful day and I'm going to chill out with a glass of wine, but we'll feel the effects of it later. Uh, The next day often we'll have that hangover where we have anxiety and you'll notice it even with one or two drinks uh, especially as we do get older and we notice that we're more sensitive to these things the other thing it impacts is our sleep quality so it means we're getting lighter sleep and during those hormonal changes you don't need more of that so it's kind of like if we take the alcohol out of the equation we're removing this huge burden to all these beautiful systems in your body working really well and just allowing your body to function at its best like any symptom if you are experiencing a symptom that's unpleasant and uncomfortable it's your body communicating to you hey come look after me we can do this better and often there are many changes we can make and we're often really glad that we made the changes in the long run thank you so much for joining me for an episode of the phoenix rising podcast please like share download, subscribe if you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next week for another episode on the Phoenix Rising podcast. Sending so much love.